Chris, uh, when you cross the Jordan, don't leave me on Mount Nebo. Uh, <laughs> it, if you don't get that reference right away, uh, ask somebody that laughed. Um, I want to uh, say a big thank you for Mary Nell and me for allowing us the privilege of serving you, of sharing in this pulpit and the preaching of the word. It is uh, a privilege, uh, an honor, a burden, uh, but uh, I really do give thanks uh, for the opportunity. Uh, I don't want to say much here because I want to get us into uh, the second round important task in 1 Corinthians 15, but I don't even remember uh, where I got the image as I was leaving uh, Covenant Prez in Harrisonburg, Virginia after 21 months back in 2013, uh, but it, it hit me uh, in something that I'd read of someone talking about uh, being on a, uh, a train was their image from an earlier day and, and looking at the trees and the train was going so fast that it was a flat image and just so many uh, individual trees, beautiful each in their own way, but uh, uh, one of the tough things about an interim is you don't have the time, even in 14 months, to uh, get to know each individual tree that God has planted to make up uh, UPC. Uh, and I delight uh, for the chance with those of you that uh, I've gotten to see in much fuller dimension for the richness and uh, the blessing of being able to share life with you in that way. And, and I delight in the transition because... Uh, while it's going to take Rick a while to get to know each of you, don't expect it to all happen at once. Uh, but uh, there will be more time for that, and that is just the nature of being interim and, and coming uh, and going. Uh, as to our future, do pray. Uh, I have these friends that I still call friends that, even though I try to retire, keep uh, giving my name to people and... Uh, and I have some of that happening already, and uh, up to this point, I'm simply saying, talk to me in January. I am not of sound mind to think of uh, even evaluating where we're whether we're physically, emotionally, and in other ways ready. Uh, would ask for specific prayers for this. Uh, one of the fun things about being back in town a few days a week uh, this last month uh, is we have a new RUF pastor, uh, Aldo, who came September a year ago that I have barely gotten to know. Uh, and from a smaller group that he had when he came in, uh, they are now renting uh, an Episcopal church about a half mile or less from our house and have about 70 University of South Florida students there every Tuesday night, uh, most of them uh, uh, somewhere on the line between believer and unbeliever and just amazing things are going on and beginning to get to know him. Uh, I think there's going to be a chance for me as an old guy to... Uh, have him want me to hang out with him some. Uh, we have a brand new pastor for a church that doesn't exist yet. You'll remember this one easily. It is University Presbyterian Church, Tampa. Uh, called that uh, before it's formed because many of the supporters wanted to see a church in the University of South Florida area, which is uh, not very big. It's only about 80% or 90% of UCF size. Uh, so it's just a small school. Uh, uh, so pray for that. And uh, one thing that I keep forgetting to say, so let me say it since I have one last time. Uh, 
when folks are available to you to pray with you at the uh, end of the service, uh, over the years as a pastor I've seen, some people are afraid to go over there because they think people are going to know, wonder what they want prayer for. Uh, that's not just for getting prayers for you. It's the wonderful list of ministries Chris raised, maybe one of them stuck in your mind. Go over there and pray together uh, with those that are there at the window for that. Uh, pray for Rick and Jess and, and their kids. There are lots of reasons. Bring up prayer for a family member, for a friend or neighbor, uh, that we might be even more a congregation uh, that looks to the Lord in everything. That being said, let's pray. Father, open us as you open your word to us, that through us, by your grace, even we might be used to shine a light on Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'm not going to walk us all the way through 1 Corinthians 15 again. Uh, it's a long text. We read it all in chunks last week. Uh, but at the end of that text, uh, and the verse is printed at the top of your outline, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why? Because of the resurrection and all the other things uh, that Paul has talked about. Thus, this morning, uh, we talk about abounding in the work of the Lord. If you want a synonym, think a word that's used a lot in our day, flourishing. Your work in the Lord, no matter how small it seems to you, can be a part of the flourishing of the work of the gospel. Humanity will flourish in spurts and sputters and starts uh, until the Lord makes all things new. But in the midst of all of that stuttering, there can be a quiet and solid and deep and rich flourishing of the Word of God and the people of God as outposts of the new creation that is yet to come. And it is because of Christ Jesus' work that your work is certain of abounding, your work in the Lord. And I want this morning in the main to walk you through in a it's obviously going to be very quick, or we'll be here all the way through lunch, and I want to eat. Uh, there maybe could be different numbering, but there are nine key aspects of the work of Christ on behalf of His church. And we tend, in the evangelical church, to rightly center on the atoning death of Christ and the bodily resurrection of Christ. You can't under, you can't overemphasize those two. But the gospel, which is, remember what the gospel is? The beginning of the gospel of God was the incarnation, the entering of God onto the earth in a new way. And that beginning has a beginning and a middle and an end, and every piece of it is the good news of Jesus' coming. And it's very helpful for you. I went over this with the elders, I think the first session meeting that I met with them, that uh, it would really be helpful for elders and, and deacons and many of you to think about each one of these aspects of the work of Christ because almost everyone you meet as a believer who's struggling needs at that moment an emphasis on one or the other of these nine. And what they need to speak the fruit of the gospel to them 
uh, in some seasons is to know the reality of the incarnation. In other seasons, it's Christ's session uh, of rule in heaven, that he's still ruling in this darkness of the world, or that he's interceding. We'll touch on all of them, so I need to get us moving. By way of introduction, In fact, I wanted uh, to do one other thing, and that was I wanted uh, to read the text. Let me uh, do that, not the whole thing, but uh, let me uh, take us to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11, just to, to get it uh, back into our heads. One second here. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they. So we preach." And so you believed. And I'm not going to take the time to read the verses that are, are also there, verses 53 to 58, but all of this is about why Paul could flourish and trust that his work in the Lord would abound and why we can too. But a backdrop. David Wells, a wonderful, I think now emeritus professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, wrote some incredible books. So one of the best in summarizing them is called the courage to be Protestant. And he's not talking about Protestantism as a thing that needs to be worshipped in itself, but he's talking about what it is uh, that we who are Protestant proclaim from the Reformation, the gospel, uh, that Stephen began the worship service so well, reminding us of those core things. And in that book of summary, The Courage to be Protestant, are these words, the world we experience outside of ourselves, outside of our own experience, in fact, is what makes some ideas seem plausible and others seem implausible. This is about a 2014 book. Today in our modernized world, what seems implausible is that there is a God who is objective to us, who stands outside of us, who is the measure of truth and who holds us accountable. We simply do not experience this in the course of life and our experience inclines us to think that it could not be true. That's the elite culture of the West. That's the environment in which our children and grandchildren are being raised. It would take way too long, though you know me well enough by now to know I'm tempted, uh, to go into why that's the case now. But let me give you just one hint. Peter Kraft, wonderful philosophy professor of the last 40 years, uh, in writing uh, about Aquinas, talks about uh, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And he says, Nietzsche was probably the most complete atheist in the history of philosophy. 
And Jean-Paul Sartre says something similar to these words of Nietzsche. Nietzsche, a forerunner to the atmosphere of our day, wrote, There can't be a God because he would thwart human freedom. There can't be a God because he would thwart human freedom. You know what's ultimate for Nietzsche. He said, I will now disprove the existence of all gods. If there were gods, how could I bear not to be a god? It's not only Nietzsche that's had that thought. That if there's a God, He's in the way of my being God, and I like being God of my realm. And I think one of the most profound things that Nietzsche said that has great insight for our day is God had to die because it would be unendurable for God to see our dark side. He's just saying, if there really is a God, then He can see myself for what I know myself at my worst to be. And I cannot bear thought of that. And thus the death of God movement in the mid-20th century and on in very practical ways in our day. And that dark side is all around us in incredible ways, stirring confusion among already confused human beings in human culture. Uh, I was reading something uh, the other day, and before I say it, let me say this. It's the trick of the enemy of, our, enemy of our souls to be drawn onto the playing fields of politics and human power when we talk about these kinds of issues. And the enemy of our souls wants us to have to think about them politically because then we avoid thinking about there might be someone outside of our experience like God who's really there. So if you think politically in response to what I'm about to say, you're off track. But I was reading an article about what's going on in the transgender movement, and we ought to have much sympathy for those that struggle with the dysphoria. We ought to have tender hearts. But we think about the background, and I'm going to be very brief with this. Uh, some of recent studies show that young women in the West see pornography for the first time now on average at about age nine. And that one of the very practical, real pushes towards pornography is young women that have been growing up over the last 10 or 20 years who are scared to death of what men are like and the way men abuse women and are harsh to women because of what they see going on and being applauded as okay and have even adults encouraging them to think they'll find their true selves and become authentic by seeing it and getting in touch with those desires. It's incredibly more complex than that. But understand the real world in which, which real people live. We're not talking philosophies here. We're talking people and what happens to them. And men are set adrift, confused about what it means to be a man, hurting, uncertain, and sometimes led into harshness that wasn't there before in the midst of the same confusion. And those are the forces swirling around us. And just being nice isn't going to cut it. It's going to take a personal love and connection with people that the church is not used to giving. 
Christopher Watkin, uh, one of my favorite new authors to me, new to me, philosopher in uh, medieval French and German uh, literature and philosophy, brilliant mind, says, uh, it was at church and among my Christian friends that I first discovered faith not as a set of ideas to believe, but as a true story of the whole universe, an alternate story, my words, that is outside of us, not limited to our own inner thinking and psychology, a true tale of love, of loss, of promise, and of costly rescue in which we all play a role. And so what I want us to talk about this morning is the work of Christ that is that costly work of rescue, that is an alternative world that we are presenting to those who have worlds that are all from the human inside out instead of from the outside speaking to our hearts and our souls. And Jesus lived and died as prophesied and rose as prophesied and appeared to many. And Christopher Watkins asks the question, it's an important question, okay, even if that's true, so what? What does it mean to the unbeliever? How might we talk about it to those who are outside and fearful of the church? And what does it mean to us? Blaise Pascal, which I had time to tell you more of his story, wrote these words in his pensée, his sayings. Men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it might be true. Nietzsche. To cure that, we have to begin by knowing that religion is not contrary to reason, that it is worthy of veneration and should be given respect. Next, it should be made lovable, should make the good wish it were true, then show that it is indeed true. I want to tie Nietzsche's extreme fear of judgment, God had to die, lest he see Nietzsche's darkness and our darkness, to Martin Luther. One quick story about Martin Luther. In June 1515, he participated in an ecclesiastical procession in his native town of Isleben for the consecration of a new monastery, and Christ was shown to the city in the form of some of the consecrated communion host in a vessel being carried down the street by von Staupitz, one of Luther's, Luther's mentors, uh, as if the presence of Christ was there to bless the people who came near to it and to bless the monastery. That's kind of foreign to us, isn't it? Unless we grew up in uh, a more, more old world Roman Catholic uh, tradition. But after that Luther, who drove von Staupitz nuts by confessing for hours and hours to him, wearing it out, went to his confessor and said, I stood far away from you because I was afraid of the presence of Christ. And listen to this. Wonderful words from this Roman Catholic priest von Staupitz. I'm paraphrasing, but he in essence powerfully said to Luther, your problem is you look at the suffering of Christ and you think that Christ is sitting on a throne of judgment. So you're afraid of Him. You must come to see that in His sufferings, Christ is sitting on a throne of mercy. And He's approachable. That you can fear Him as God without being afraid. And that was the beginning. One of the key moments in what led to 1517 and the posting 
of the 95 Theses on the door as his mentor showed him things about the gospel. So thus, quickly through nine aspects of Christ's work. One, incarnation. I'm going to, in each of these very, very quickly, talk about so what for non-believers, those who have a different world that they see, and then so what for us as believers that we might be steadfast and immovable. For those who aren't in the world of Christ, what if there really is a world where men and women who rebelled against their Creator and tried to make their own way, that the Creator, instead of removing them from His presence forever, moves towards them, first through Moses and David and Isaiah and ultimately through His Son? What if, what if instead of being on a throne of judgment, the God who is there really is on a throne of mercy? His eternal Son, His eternal Word, take word taking on a body and nature of flesh to show them what God is really like, to approach them as a baby and as a man whom sinners liked to be near. What if, in the right moment, you might ask some non-Christian friends that question and help them understand this is the gospel that you love, not the distortion And for us as a believer, this tells us the incarnation that God knows our dark side. He knows your rebellion, your strugglingly fickle heart, but He comes for you. He set aside all His prerogatives, His total power, His infinite knowledge, and becomes like you, gives up His stature to show you He values you and yours. We've sung about it already today. You come to have the greatest significance not by your choices, which is what existentialism began to teach in the 20th century. There's only meaning because you make choices. Oh, what a weight to put on a human being who's so inadequate. But we are valuable because of God's choice. That's motivation to steadfastness. Two, told you we were going to move fast. Sinless life. The sinless life, the obedience of Christ on our behalf. For believers in other worlds than the true world Christ brings us, One of the great struggles in a self-created world is that you have to perform to succeed in your own eyes, let alone the pressures from all the eyes that are constantly evaluating you, family, friends, social media responses, the intense judgments today. What if you don't have to fear like Nietzsche, the philosopher, or Luther, the priest, because you can have an eternal son, eternal word, Savior in Jesus who says, I will perform for you, and I did. I will be your safety, my success in walking faithful to my Father and faithful to neighbors, and my faithfulness will clothe you, and you will be called faithful in me. Brothers and sisters, abound in the work of the Lord because Jesus not only died for you, He lived for you. It is the saving life of Christ as well as the cross as the saving death of Christ. That's the gospel we preach. Hallelujah, Jesus lived for me. And then I can't believe it, He died for the penalty that I already deserved. Thirdly, atoning death. For believers in other worlds, when Nietzsche and young Luther what they knew is that our own consciences criticize and condemn us. 
no matter how much we repress our sense of God's ultimate authoritative standards, ultimate rights and wrongs exist, ultimate issues of value and justice. This knowledge keeps creeping back into our consciousness, consciousness, which is why Neil Postman wrote way back in the 60s, uh, amusing ourselves to death. That's what he saw Western culture do, and a, a Jewish communication scholar. I don't know if he believed in biblical Judaism, but he saw that we were distracting ourselves, amusing ourselves to death. And if it was true then, now we got it in our hands. And when we don't have that being enough, we put it on our watches. And when we don't want to look at our watches, we have earphones that connect to our watches. And we're just entertained and connected and condemned by the judgments of others 24-7. We can't get away from it. And apart from those outside of us standards, we know that we don't even live up to our own inside standards. What if, what if the eternal Son of the Creator really does love you enough not only to come close and to live the right life for you, but showed you that you need not fear God if you trust in Him who truly took your deserved condemnation on Himself? What if that's not a fictional world, but if that's the real world, and you bought into a fiction whose narrative has been painted because people are running from the dark moments in the middle of the night when they're so afraid and don't want to tell anybody about it and need to drug themselves up. Some of us, many of us, have been there. What about for believers? What do we do? When we feel guilty, we need the atoning death. When we feel guilty, we tend to both turn inward and also to take our pain and our fears out on others, don't we? When Adam got caught, what did he do? Just go sit in the corner? No. He hurled words at God. This woman you gave me, God. That's chapter 3. What happens in chapter 4? Cain hurls more than words. And he kills his brother. When there's no... True narrative with an atoning death, we take it out on others. We go back to the garden blame game. How freeing it is to know that we stand in God's presence, live in His presence, not by our deeds, but by Jesus. And Jesus looks us in the eyes with forgiveness. I can be steadfast when I see Jesus looking at me who knows my dark side and says, you're an adopted son, father. Look at my hands, look at my feet, look at my side, uh, they're marked with the blessings of your grace already. Does that help you stay steadfast? Meditate on those verses. There's power. You don't need a psychology book. You don't need a counselor who's drifting away from the Word of God. Though I'm not down on counseling, there's a need for longer-term therapy. There's a need for some of the drugs that are helpful in the crisis moments when we can't even think straight and have to slow down. But we always need more of God's Word. That's the ground for bodily resurrection, for believers in other worlds. What if this life is not all there is? What if those longings for ultimate love, unmarred beauty, sustained faithfulness towards others from us and from those that we would love could really be true? What if this body, which once seems so strong but is weakening, isn't the final body? I never think about that at 75 getting clumsier and clumsier. It's like watching a kid learn to walk. I'm going backwards in that process. And by the way, if you're over 30, 
you have a disease you may not know you have. It's called presbyopia. Opia is eyes, presby is old, elders old. Presbyopia is old eyes. And if you're past 30, that's what you got. Your eyes are in decline, whether you know it yet or not. If you go to your ophthalmologist's office, there's probably a brochure, brochure that says, what is presbyopia? I've seen it in several of them. What if Jesus really did appear bodily to so many? What if your most beautiful and deepest longings point to a life without rebellion, without being lost in self-involvement, the world before sin and yet even a better world? But for believers, oh, for believers in Jesus' world, the bodily resurrection, I may have mentioned this in passing, but I will never forget co-officiating a service in the 90s in the chapel at MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa. I was co-officiating with Glenn Gresham, one of my students at RTS Orlando when I taught there adjunct for eight and a half years, who was the base chaplain. He and his wife found out in the midst of the pregnancy, they already had two or three kids, uh, that they had uh, a baby with one of the trisomy uh, syndrome things, I forget exactly which one, who, a baby that probably wouldn't live a week or two after birth. And almost all the base doctors said abort the baby. But they didn't, and the whole base became aware of what was going on in the Gresham family. And Glenn asked if I would come do the funeral with him when his newborn died after a week or so. Because he didn't think he could do parts of it. And I can't tell you the joy of proclaiming the gospel. Top brass from MacDill were there down to first level airmen and women. And after that service was over, there were 100 to 200 people that hung around and only trickled out after an hour or an hour and a half because they couldn't believe what they'd heard and seen in Glenn and Elena. And they wanted to be around people like that. How can people be that way? It's because of the bodily resurrection. And Glenn and I talk almost every month, and we will be friends till one of us die. I hope it's me first. He's younger. But it's because of sharing the joy of the resurrection together. Five, bodily ascension. For believers in other worlds, what if the Christian's belief other worlds, another way of looking at the world. What if the Christian's belief in the resurrection is not some mystical, ethereal, all religions are of the same sort, mysterious inner spirituality? What if it's true that Jesus is the firstborn of a new age, new recreation, and that Jesus showed it not only by rising bodily, but ascending from the earth bodily? What if those who find new life in Christ do get new bodies, and a time when all things are made right lies ahead? And for believers, Paul says it so well in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life alone, we of all people are to most be pitied. But Paul shouts, we can be steadfast and immovable because of the beautiful reality of the atoning death and the bodily resurrection and the bodily ascension. Six, Christ's ruling session in heaven. Elders, did you know there was a session in heaven? Theologians describe it that way. It's the session, the court of the sons rule from the right hand of the father's side. For those who are stuck with visions of other worlds in their head, what if the stumbling attempts by men and women and nations at justice, by the way, they are stumbling attempts. Read history and look with honest eyes at the imperfect or downright tyrannical fruit of most revolutions for justice. It simply puts the power of control 
into another group's hands. Read history. Take it from C.S. Lewis. Read an older book or two for every new book you read. Otherwise, you're a slave to the present moment where we who are alive and right think we're the smartest of all. But what if our stumbling attempts, which it's good that we have them, desire justice? What if they stir real longings for the rule of a God who's both merciful and just, a God who slowly now reveals the negative fruit of personal sins and national sins, but He does it slowly when they're without repentance, but will bring a king, a just king in Christ who makes all things right when He returns. Believers, we delight that ever since the God-man Jesus, God's uniquely anointed one, arrived in heaven, we have an advocate there who knows us, who pleads our case, His sinless life bearing once our sins, and that helps us be steadfast. Seven, Christ's Pentecost, His pouring out the Spirit on us. Christ is pouring out right now. Pray that it would be true on my words, His word above all. This afternoon when you go home, He doesn't stop giving life to you if you're in Christ. What if the God who seems so hidden at moments doesn't say to Adam, banished from the garden, or to us when Jesus ascended, go into the world and good luck? Because good luck is the religion of the world. But they practice it in so many different ways. But rather, he, the resurrected Jesus, is willing to pour out an entirely new quality of life, discernment, self-honesty, emotional encouragement to us. What if we're not alone? As we so often feel when we're told there's no true story, no real meaning, and we have to make it up, decide who we are, be authentic to ourselves when we don't even know who we are, with fickleness, choose to lean on ever-changing voices around us. What if there's one true voice who's shown us He loves us and will pour out His life? Eight, Christ's intercession for His people. To believers in other worlds, what if the heavens are not silent? What if we don't need to turn with Nietzsche to despair, don't need to hope as some do in spacemen from other orbs as our forebears and how we got here or our saviors to get us out of our mess? What if we're truly not alone? What if Christ is praying even for non-believers, using the Spirit of God to help them begin to see their rebellion against their Creator is really the only foundational sin? John's gospel, Jesus tries to teach us, don't judge non-believers by a standard of morality that you yourself can't keep. It's not that we don't long for behavior that molds health and wealth. We need to be so in love with Jesus that we know there's only one sin that counts, unbelief in Jesus, because everything else comes from it. And that puts us in the position of wanting our unbelieving friends to know more about what Jesus is really like and, become, and, and wanting us to become like Him than it does trying to press morality down or get the right political party in our view, whichever side of the aisle or in the middle we are, thinking that that's going to make the morality be moral. Nonsense! It's the church that is that way. For believers, Christ intercedes and He prays for us what we pray. Lead us not into temptation. And the biggest temptation, I've taught it to you before in the Lord's Prayer, is that we not forgive. It's twice there in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. That we not become forgivers. 
and deliver us from the evil or the evil one. Doubly, Jesus tells us the temptation we most need to fear is the temptation not to forgive, and that's what the evil one most desires, that believers not forgive those around them in our own family or non-believers who hurt us. But if we can't get past the need, the place where we begin to forgive, by the way, we're going a little past 1115, so hang on. Not a lot past. But the one thing we need is to be like Jesus, and at the center of what he did is forgive. Nine, Christ returned to establish the new heaven and the new earth. For believers in the other worlds all around us swirling in people's minds, the greatest human difficulty with believing in Jesus is that we humans, apart from God's grace, are so self-involved. Notice I didn't say selfish. That often goes with it. But when we start with ourselves, we are self-involved. It can be true of believers, equally true of non-believers. And self-involvement is the reason we think, first of all, from a perspective of how things affect us and how we want it fixed and now. By the way, don't fall into the trap when the new pastor comes. We want it fixed now. We long for straight-line, one-dimensional power. What's one of the big arguments against God in some people's minds? How could He let all this evil go on in the world? Just straight-line power, He ought to just wipe everything out that's bad. We don't think about the fact that He'd wipe us out if He did that. But what if when we do that, we put somebody in charge in the place of the wrong people, and history is the story of putting self-involved, permanent, unforgiving rebels in charge. And what if Jesus dying on the cross is so hard for us to grasp because it's the most indirect display of power? It's not straight-line power. It's not power like the world's. What if God's judging His Son, which points not only to His death, which it caused, but it points to death for all life apart from being included with Jesus and in His resurrection. And it points to God's patience in not starting the new world immediately and even letting us go on hurting our neighbors. What if it's the only way for forgiveness and forbearance, for mercy and for justice to be shown to all people before the end and the new beginning comes? What if that's the best way for God to show unbelievers and believers, that He's both merciful and just. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. Don't stop believing the gospel when you want the world fixed. God is fixing it the only way that it can really be fixed. And for believers, we have a place in a new age, and our job is to love and forbear for our neighbors. And that our real motivation and sustenance in being steadfast and immovable is the surety that we play a part that makes a difference. Finally, how are pastors, elders, and other members of the body to live in this reality? Be glad I'm not a true Puritan. At this point, they'd be halfway through the sermon and have 14 applications. You should read some of those sermons. They're worthwhile. This is on the outline. The public and private ministry of the Word is how we do it. That life is in Christ Jesus. Success is in His person 
and work, not in how our pastor or congregation compares to others in star power, dollars, or the number of sinners, saints like us, who fill the seats on Sunday. I charge you to remember that as Rick Martin comes. Your tendency is going to be to have an outside world define success for you. Instead of saying, is Rick and the elders and the staff and those that are gathering around the life group leaders, are we getting better and better year by year in both the public ministry of applying God's Word and the private ministry in our groups and our places, applying these nine things and the other riches of Scripture? So that the health of the sinner is what's growing out and why the church gets bigger because like people wanted to be around Glenn and Elena at the death of their son. They want to be around UPC because they look at how you live together and how you treat insiders and how you treat outsiders. Secondly, expectations of pastors and elders. Their task is to encourage one another, staff, and you to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. If the way they live towards each other and towards you and that all of you live substantively, not perfectly, toward others uh, is like Christ leads us. UPC will be successful. And Rick comes among you as a, a lead under-shepherd amongst other under-shepherds. Don't make him the lead shepherd. Don't put him on the pedestal. Don't do what Howard Hendricks used to say so often. Don't make the pastor uh, good so you can be good for nothing. You call him good. He's the one who's supposed to do it. No, his job, Rick already said it when he was here, is to help the others with him equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which is the work of our labor in the Lord. Focus on Jesus in worship. Walk alongside one another, strengthening weak knees as necessary. We didn't stand for Scripture at the beginning. Would you stand? And just listen. If it helps you to close your eyes, close them. I want to read you as my final words from this pulpit, from Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits God sent out into all the earth. And don't let the sevens and the numbers get in the way. Uh, they're numbers of fullness, the ability to see the 
it's just pressing it into ultimates that we don't even understand and can't. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of God, the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creature and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. your job to worship.